This is Joshua Wolfshank, and you're listening to The Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Joshua Wolfshank. I'm an essayist, and that means that I get to ask questions for a living. And the most recent question I've spent many years asking, what is this thing we call chemistry or synergy or electricity between people that allows them to do things together beyond what they could do on their own? And I should say, I've been a fan of your uh, your work even before that. My my older son, as some listeners know, my older son's name is Lincoln. So I obviously am tied into a lot of different essays and writings on uh, on any of that, which is I think always sort of interesting. And then I was I was pleasantly surprised when I found the new book because as as uh, folks that have read my book know that I don't really subscribe to this idea of the lone genius, the lone creator. And thankfully, in asking all your questions, you you sort of don't too. But um, I wonder if we could set it up a bit just by talking about this myth, this idea that that creative genius or genius in general happens as a sort of solo, lonely act. Where, where do you think that even comes from? Well, there is a very distinct history starting in the Enlightenment and proceeding through the Romantic era. And then it became fueled in recent times by Cold War politics and this idea of the rugged individual becoming almost a patriotic uh, necessity to believe in it. Um, the, I think it persists more fundamentally because it just makes for such a good story. It's so clear and rousing and exciting to see Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein sort of hacking through you know, all the challenges in their world on their way to greatness and relationships while they are true to the way we work and any one of us can by very simple reflection on our own life recognize that we're, we're always being affected by other people drawn along by other people inspired maddened challenged um, they're also inherently complex and often elusive and and therefore it's often easy to just cut that out of the story and pretend that it doesn't exist. And that's really problematic if we want to create ourselves or if we want to understand the creation of these things that we so love, whether it's the theory of relativity or Emily Dickinson's poetry or the iPhone. You know, I, I totally agree with you. I think uh, I, I've settled on the idea that it's... Um that perhaps it's just cognitive laziness, right? It's it's easier to tell a story as if it were one person instead of talking about the team, the duo, uh, the dyad. Is I love. By the way, I love that word. So I love the dyad comes up over and over again as a as a term. It's an underappreciated term for a pair of people. Um, and so it's it's easier just to tell the story as if it's sort of one person. And and the irony is along do along with doing that, we're sending this message that if you are not making, if you're not achieving your craft and achieving excellence in your craft alone, then clearly there's a problem with you. You're not cut out for it. You're not, you're not of the Steve Jobs or, or Isaac Newton level of genius. When in reality, those people got to where, it, like, if it weren't for the fact that they had help, they would have never gotten to the point of notoriety and impact on the world to where we would have felt the need to right away to to, to erase their help and focus in on them as a lone genius. Yes, that's well said. You know, Steve Jobs is an especially intriguing character because he is the iconic lone genius type. He was also famously tyrannical, even beastly, uh, to people who were around him. And yet, if you really look carefully at the arc of his career, his what characterizes it from beginning to end is his ability to spot talent. And not just talent, 
And he was also famously interested only in A players. But you need to be more than an A player to be in his universe. You need to be an A player who he could connect with, who he could jive with. This is a guy who once interviewed a COO candidate who had been headhunted and you know, passed through many layers, and he got up after five minutes and left the room because he didn't connect with him emotionally. And his connections with Wozniak, uh, making Apple Computer to begin with, then flash forward to, the, to his return to Apple, his connections with with Tim Cook and Ron Johnson and Johnny Ive, his design guru, who he said was his spiritual partner. This is really how he thrived, always in these relationships. You know, the other funny thing about Jobs is that he's often called a modern Edison. And the, and the parallel is pretty perfect because Edison, too, was extraordinary because of the environment that he created and the, and the deputies that he entrusted and the culture of innovation, much more than what went on in his own mind, which was certainly interesting and even remarkable. But it was it was about his working in concert, and it, this line that you know, um, the you know, the creativity or genius is is one percent one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration, which the you know ninety nine U folks have taken up and you know make make the center of their organization in that that conference. It's a funny line because, you know, who was doing this perspiration, you know, and Edison was famous in his, in his, in his circle for um, actually not doing that much. I mean, he was a tireless guy in many respects, but he, a lot of what he did was actually executed by other people. And that is critical. And you, you touch on this really deep problem, which is that even if we're in the, this collaborative environment, and we're doing it beautifully, you may have a sense of inadequacy. You know, that, well, yeah, I'm, you know, working with other people, but that's like a crutch. You know, I'm not really doing anything meaningful because I'm not, you know, dreaming of a, you know, new law of the universe the way Einstein did. Well, Einstein didn't do it that way either. I mean, he had remarkable thoughts, but he was in constant conversation with people around him who could draw him out and with whom he could test and and refine his ideas, and that that story and that reality is nothing to be ashamed of. To, to the contrary, it's something to be really embraced. It's it's exciting. It's also challenging, but it's it's that's real. That's really the, the the source of all good things. Oh, I I totally agree. I, I love to to remind people that Thomas Edison probably didn't try ten thousand times to find a filament because a, a the Smithsonian only really verifies about six hundred attempts. But B, it probably wasn't him doing all that trying, right? Now, maybe he steered out what elements they should try, but there were the whole muckers in Menlo Park. And toward that end, I, I try and remind people that the greatest invention of Edison wasn't the light bulb. Now, granted, he wasn't the only person who invented the light bulb, but it was Menlo Park. It was that facility, and it was the recognition that he needed He needed help. Of course, the irony is that even, even Edison and his team recognized that people were willing to shell out way more money if they believed it was just Edison working alone than if you pitched them the idea of this grand collaboration, right? So there we see this dangerous propagation of the myth again and again and again. Yes, that's really interesting. There's so many structural reasons why the myth persists. I mean, people want to be in relationship to this sort of magical creature and historians want to write about it and journalists want to you know, put, put that person on the cover, you know, make him the, often the literal poster boy of, you know, uh, of, to, to, to represent 
this thing that is really hard to understand if you if you get into its innards. Um, but it's also you know the other thing you 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 bring out quite rightly is that a lot of times this the, these uh, uh, fruitful partnerships are asymmetrical. You do have a towering figure, you know, who is running the show and someone who works for him or her, and that's that's part of this story. We 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 don't look at collaboration nearly enough, and when we do, we think, oh well, it's got to be equal, and they both have got to be equally credited and have equal ownership and equal power, and that's not the case at all. If you if you have someone activating you, supporting you, challenging you from any position, uh, from a lower position in your company. From another company, it, you know, maybe your spouse, your you know, girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or wife or, or best friend. That is the kind of activation, the kind of relational charge that I'm interested in. That I think is underneath, really underneath all of innovation. No, I I totally agree, and th- and that's where my you know my focus is on is is knowing that this is that this lone idea is not really a reflection of reality. What does the research? What what does the anecdotal evidence suggest? And that's what I love about the book. It really dives into these pairs, and and you mentioned one characteristic, but there are so many different characteristics of what makes for these sort of successful collaborations. And I, I guess I just said the question in the in a way of a statement, but that, that was kind of the next question I had for you is what, what are the defining things of these creative pairs or, or creative collaborations as a whole? Right. Well, that's the, the book is organized around these six major themes that I found as I looked through the stories. I began with how do people meet? Literally, like when, it, when, did, when did Larry Page and Sergey Brin you know, first shake hands? When did John Lennon and Paul McCartney become aware of each other? And then following from that moment all the way through these stories, which you know, may last three years or nine years or may still be ongoing, and I identified these six major themes. Um, first, chemistry. Second, joint identity. Third, roles. Fourth, distance. Five, tension, competition, conflict. And six, um, uh, interruption and the response to the inherent challenges and this question of, you know, why do some pairs endure and some split up? And, and the other thing I want to emphasize is that these are the things that I found over and over and over and over again in these eminent partnerships like Watson and Crick and Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger but I also see them in my life and I see them in the lives of my peers and even people who are just starting out. And so while, while you know, we're talking about these, you know, these great stories of, of great people, um, it's, this is really about the, the greatness of everyday life and, and what all of us can do if we, if we tune into this or at least what principles apply as we try to do it. Because, you know, of course, you know, making great things is always... Um, it's always unlikely. I mean, it's you know, and you have to be uh, you know prepared for all the inherent challenges and the necessary failures and all the humility of it. You know. Yeah, I I totally agree. So uh, among the different the six, the one that I think is potentially e- equally as damaging as believing in the lone genius idea as a whole was this idea around tension. I really drilled in in that area because I feel like okay, so the first hurdle is getting people who may not 
who who need collaboration to understand that Steve Jobs was a gen a lone genius because history rewrote him as a lone genius because he had collaboration, right? So getting people to realize that they sort of benefit and need help, and that's not a sign of failure; it's a sign of a, of a potentially pending success. I think the second thing to overcome in a lot of people's minds is that if there is tension, that's actually a good thing. You know, so often we're we're sort of just trained in this world to we're supposed to get along with everybody. And anytime there's any level of tension, then we should focus in on the tension and resolve it before we move forward. But in a way that tension actually sort of propels these pairs forward. Yes. Yes, no, that that is essential. And in many ways the book culminates to this, you know, because this is the great theme of the most um, you know, at the height of 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 the, the great work, you know, when John and Paul are making Sgt. Pepper's and the White Album, um, when Pablo Picasso and Henri Matisse are at their height, um, and the story is um, is quite complex. It, it gets to questions of power and how we relate to each other around power. Um, it gets to the fundamental role of of, of tension in in these partnerships because if you just go back to the beginning for a second, people that we are going to do great work with need to share our values to some extent. We need to be aligned with them. There needs to be a foundation, but we also need to be challenged by them and they need to be very different from us. It may be that they come from a different background like Wozniak, the engineer, you know, meeting up with Steve Jobs who you know, had a more amorphous kind of, you know, what was he? He was, had marketing instincts, he had salesman instincts, he was kind of a visionary, a, a proto-visionary, or maybe more temperamental. You know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were both young songwriters and musicians, but one of them was just swaggering and full of bravado and, and a poet at heart and just wanted to challenge everything and, you know, put his... Uh, you know, stick his finger in everyone's chest, and one of them was great with form and structure, and a real student, even at 15 years old, a real student of, of, of popular sound, and could perfectly imitate, when he was a teenager, Little Richard, which is a remarkable thing, and Buddy Holly, and Carl uh, Perkins. So this kind of inherent challenge is there from the start, and it, you know, if you think about the, the cliche of the oyster in the grain of sand. That cliche really does apply to uh, to every partnership that I saw. The irritation may feel kind of pleasant, like playful banter, or it may actually get to be really, really distressing. And the question is is not how does it feel in our friendships and our romantic relationships. That's the main question. You know, what's this like for us, and are we enjoying it or not? But with creative work, the question is, how good is the work? And you, you may actually actively dislike the experience of being with your partner. Um, and that's an extreme case. It's not something I recommend. But it is true that sometimes you may actually actively dislike it and still make great work. That was the case with Penn and Teller for many years. They, or at least according to, to Penn, who's the spokesman for the two of them, you know, they really didn't like each other. But they respected each other. And they showed up for each other. And they knew that they were doing something together way beyond what they could do on their own. And if, if, if you'll indulge me, I'll just hit one more point. Um, um, I know I've been going on, but it's a, it's a big topic. And, and that is just the point of actual competition. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the 
to me, surprising expressions of collaboration is what we might call adversarial collaboration. Two people who are actually motivated to beat each other. And, and one way of looking at this is to see people who are literally trying to beat each other, like in sports. So we see this with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, who came up together. They were in college together. There's this epic NCAA final um, where Magic's team won and Bird was just devastated by it. They entered the NBA together. And this was their whole minds and lives, their, their whole approach to the game was organized around trying to beat the other guy and his team. And yet over time, that oppositional energy is a lot of what made them so good. It kept them working. It, it drew them to the peak of their game. And that quality, I mean, it may seem like an outlier at start, but that quality actually you see in a lot of great partnerships, including partnerships where people are doing the same work. Again, like John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they're constantly trying to outdo the other, trying to top the other, they, and they're you know, trying to get the A side of the single, uh, trying to impress the girls in the front row. Actually, that's not something I heard from, from John and Paul, but it is something I heard from Roger Daltrey and Pete Townsend. You know, they were each wanted to be the big guy in the band, and that can really be a source of, um, uh, it can be really generative, it can be really creative, uh, although it's obviously also, you know, very challenging to, to, to stick with. Yeah, I, I loved that uh, that framing of the, the proper question, right? The proper question isn't necessarily, do I get along with this person? Do I like this person? But how good is the work? And is the work worth putting up with, whether it's a competitive rivalry or whether it's a whether it's a duo in our in our productive lives, those those pairs have that weird balance between getting along, but also propelling the work. And, and presumably, the better the quality of the work, the more you can put up with individual differences. At least that's what I read into like a Lennon-Paul McCartney story. And eventually, in, in my opinion, and this is just one music lover, in my opinion, when the work started to decline, that's when the tension wasn't worth it anymore. But that's, that's just me prejudging certain albums uh, and, and, <laughs> and all of that. Anytime you want, I'm glad to, to, to put up, you know, to... to, to uh to get super geeky on the Beatles, which is a lot of fun and a big part of the book. Um, you know, I, I love their story because it illustrates all these themes and I, I love it because of what came from it. And I think what you said is just right, that the quality of the work allows us to endure. It's also true, there's a, there's, you can look at it another way, which is when the work is really good, yes, that will allow us to endure it, but it also binds us to that partnership all the more deeply. Because when you make Sgt. Peppers with someone and the world sees it, that then shapes your identity as part of this collaboration. And part of the work is not just putting up with this person, but is experiencing a kind of humility to say, I am not in total control here. I can't just pack up my marbles and go to a game, another game, anytime I want. I'm, I, my reputation, uh, my career is to some extent, you know, maybe in a small way, maybe in an enormous way, tied up with this other person. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They just, they, their ego can't stand it. They can't stand to seed control. And I really think that that much more than we, than we recognize is a hindrance to the kind of greatness that you and I are interested in studying and, and you know, and, and achieving and, and that everybody on some level wants. And it's, it's this funny thing because we often tell the exact opposite of the truth. Like, 
If you look at George Lucas and the mythology around George Lucas, it's all this romance that he defied Hollywood and he didn't care what anybody thought and he was willing to, you know, just uh, go to the mat for this, these mad ideas he had. The truth is that, yeah, he had a lot of wild ideas and they were wild and also just loopy. And it was only in relentless exchange with the circle of filmmakers and with his wife, who was herself an enormously accomplished film editor, that he was able to bring that to the screen with Star Wars. So it's not primarily the story of a, of a, a maverick-defying relationships. It's a story of a, of a guy, of a maverick, yeah, but who is only able to accomplish, you know, or to realize that, that mavericity, maybe coining a word here, through relationships and through a kind of humility, which I think in Lucas, you know, he eventually, he lost that. He, he, got, he got very famous, he got very rich, and he didn't want to work with, he didn't want people to say no to him. And that, in a, in a, in a word, is what explains the difference between the original Star Wars trilogy and, you know, the, and, and the Phantom Menace and what followed. He, this is a guy, and you can see this in the documentary, the making of that first uh, prequel, this was a guy that no one said no to. He literally he walks into a room, and he says something, and everyone is just nodding yes. And that is not a place where great work happens. Yeah, I, Mavericity, I love. I, that could have been the name of the book, but I think The Powers of Two actually sets a, a little bit better tone. Um, one, yeah. So one of the recurring, the other recurring themes, even though this this um, book specifies in wonderful uh, pairs and collaboration, how that works person to person, is the idea that all great ideas have other influences. And so that runs throughout The Powers of Two, but it also makes me wonder, as, as the reader and now as the one who gets to ask you the question, it makes me wonder what you're reading now and where you're getting your ideas from. Um, that is a great question. I am sort of living two lives right now. I'm uh, uh, promoting this book and in conversation with this, you know, with, with great folks like you and reading uh, your book and reading, I'm encountering a lot of people who um, really excite me a lot and writing about creativity. Um, a woman named Sarah Lewis reviewed my book for the New York Times, and she wrote a beautiful book called The Rise about the relationship of failure and creativity that I really love. And I'm also then have this other track where I'm beginning to think about my next book, which is a kind of family history and memoir and essay about money and the American dream and the way that our, the way that our identity gets wrapped up in what we have and the way that self-worth and net worth are in this kind of complicated and intriguing relationship to one another. So I'm, I'm starting to read um, uh, a lot of memoirs, uh, and I'm really especially interested in, in memoirs that kind of combine a personal experience um, and, uh, you know, an investigation into the world around them. I just bought a book called uh, The Factory of Facts by Luke Sante. He's a, a terrific essayist. So I, I am uh, all over the map with my reading. Um, and I also, I just love to read, I read The New Yorker and, and, and that, you know, Harper's and the Paris Review and uh, try to keep up with the culture that way. 
No, I, I love that was actually going to be my question was what's next for you, but you hit into it with the net, the net worth and self-worth link. I For what it's worth, by the way, I, I blame mint.com because as soon as I started trusting it for my personal finances, it started telling me every time I signed in what my net worth was and whether it would go up and down based on what I charged to my credit card, right? So I'm, I'm going to put the blame on them, but apparently your, your research is finding it's a longer term problem than that. Mint is amazing. And it, it's just the... Just yeah, seeing the cold hard numbers and it, it makes it so easy. I'm someone who never tracked my expenses, but Mint uh, helps me do it, and it's it is uh, it, it is dizzying to see everything in such in such clarity. I, I am the you know the, the the this book that we're talking about, Powers of Two, is a lot about relational archetypes and how people some people you know. We all have these different predilections. I'm the kind of guy who I think about numbers as little as possible. I, I'm I want to dream. I want to sketch ideas. I want to. I am not a practical personality. And people like us tend to do well in relationship with immensely practical people. But the money thing is 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 definitely one of the one of the places that plays out and. Um, and lot and lots of other places too. I mean, I, I one of the places this book leaves me is you know, I'm just preoccupied by you know how how to make this stuff work in my life, how to have partnerships that really um, that help me be better and and work better. And um, I should just also say I I love hearing from people. Um, and maybe you'll put my website up on your on yours, but uh, I'm. I'm, I'm glad to hear from anyone who, who who listens to this and is interested. And they can find me at shank.net, S-H-E-N-K.net. Um, and, um, you know, because I, I want to know, how does this stuff actually intersect with people's day-to-day lives? That's that's where it really, really gets interesting to me. Yeah, no, I and that, that was going to be my next, next question, which was how do we get a hold of you? But shank, shank.net. I, so the, the book, again, for those listening, is The Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. If you don't reevaluate at least three of the pairs and relationships that you have in your professional life, then go ahead and email them and ask for your money back. But I promise you, you'll probably reevaluate way more than that and figure out, most importantly, how to get them to work for you in your life and your leadership and your creative struggles, um, whatever it is. The, the book does a wonderful job of presenting the cold hard facts, sort of like mint.com, but then also helping you ask the right questions about yourself and about your own work. So for that, um, Joshua, I, I applaud you for an awesome book. And thank you also for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you, David. It's been great. Thanks for your work. Hey, everybody. It's Dave. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you want more, go to davidberkus.com slash podcast. And check out my friend Sean Murphy's Work That Matters podcast. Go to switchandshift.com and click Work That Matters podcast. Check it out.